And Adam found no suitable helpmate, and so God said to him, Adam, for an arm and a leg, I'll give you someone who will cook, clean, produce children for you, serve you every day, and be subordinate of you every day for the rest of your life. And Adam says, what can I get for a rib? hey This is the Campus Preacher Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism. And this is episode 87, Beth Allison Barr and the Breaking of Biblical Personhood. Well, I am broadcasting from the motherland in Moscow, Idaho. Uh, I've been on the road for the last couple months preaching. I'm back in Moscow, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a little little delayed in some of these podcasts, but I'm going to get back after it. In, in the last podcast, I said I was going to do homosexuality and get into deconstruction, and then you, a little bit on the web, some of the brouhaha over, I guess, kind of pseudo-evangelical feminists, be it uh, Jesus and John Wayne or this book by Beth Allison Barr called The uh, uh, Making of Biblical Womanhood which I started to read on Scrib, and I just kind of got hooked. And I, what I began to realize is that what you have in the deconstructionist sort of angle of things, it's going to include these evangelical feminists. It's going to include homosexuality. So I still plan on kind of staying the course in addressing homosexuality a little bit downstream from here, as well as some of the deconstructionist components, especially uh, by James Smith. And I um, can't remember the guy's first name, but Caputo wrote a book called What Would Jesus Deconstruct? Maybe 10 or 15 years ago, he wrote a book, What Would Jesus Deconstruct? And I'll look at that a little bit. But what I wanted to do today in light of what I was thinking of doing and come across this book is just kind of do a little bit of a book review of Beth Allison Barr's book. And I'll probably do this over the next two, maybe three weeks. Uh, this week, right now, I'm just going to address creation. Next week, I'll probably address Ephesians 5 and some of the Pauline household household code laws. And then finally, uh, kind of address the difference between, say, pagan patriarchy and Christian patriarchy, which is also part of um, Beth Allison Barr's ire. And we uh, should be sensitive to those things and realize that. So, uh, so yeah, let's get after it. So here, here's what I want to do. Um, first of all, there's a lot here in this book that is just utter nonsense. And, and here's kind of the difficulty. Uh, Beth Allison Barr can give us all the stories that she wants. So one of the things that is going on in our culture and with the rise of critical theory and uh, critical race theory and these other things, one of the things that critical race theorists in particular put forward is the idea of a counter-narrative. And so what it basically does is is people telling the stories of their oppression, and it's a counter to the uh, basically the majority story. And so basically what Beth Allison Barr is doing here is that the majority story down through history culturally, even within the church, is some element of patriarchy. And what she wants to do is basically talk about how this narrative of patriarchy is destructive of women, devalues women, harms women, and all this sort of stuff. So it's kind of a counter-narrative. Um, and much of it's just kind of anecdotal. And so what, what I want to avoid is just getting into her story. So for example, she quotes uh, an evangelical kind of egalitarian uh, named Gundry, and he says this. He says, arguments in which both sides launch aggressive offenses and structure fortress-like defenses can be unnecessarily adversarial. I am not suggesting that such arguments have no place, but let's acknowledge that their value is vastly overrated. Stories cover the same territory, but they are testimonials, and it's hard to argue with someone's testimony. Some who hear my story may think I became a biblical egalitarian for inadequate reasons, but more often than not, the response has been, that makes sense. You've given me something to think about. And a new story begins, or at least takes a new turn in the road. So this is basically what Beth Allison Barr's project is. And uh, we, we, the, the reason I'm, I'm going to kind of avoid some of the historical arguments that she's making, um, as well as her story, is this. 
we can find plenty of quote-unquote patriarchal women that can write a counter story as well. Um, I was in the workplace and I did this and then I went home and had children. Here's why life's so much more satisfying in a quote-unquote patriarchal folk quiver. Even if you want to take the most extreme examples of patriarchy that you can conjure up in your head, we can always find women that find that life better. We can find women that maybe even go to a Saudi context and find that life better. So the in of itself, the idea of a testimonial does not determine something to be true, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. Um, the other thing I'm not going to do is just chase a bunch of history because even if we granted that there was uh, matriarchy at the very beginning of history, that doesn't mean that matriarchy ought, ought to be right any more than, say, our current environment is patriarchal. I don't think it is, but let's just say that it is. Uh, the historical aspect of things does not mean that it ought to be normative uh, for men and women. So I'm not going to uh, chase all these stories. I'm not going to chase her history. I'm also not going to chase down every non sequitur that she makes. And this is, it's really like, I hate saying things like this because it sounds like just, you know, pomp rhetoric, but it's really amazing that this would pass an editor. Um, she says all sorts of things that simply uh, do not follow at all. Uh, so for example, I don't think there's any connection between, say, patriarchy and the devaluing of uh, women's work. Uh, it's simply acknowledging that men are not women and women are not men, and therefore they function differently. It has nothing to do with devaluing. And so even part of her definition, which we'll look at here in a second, of patriarchy, I think is uh, vastly uh, misreading. Uh, but, but she makes sentences like this all over the place. She says, my modern students balk at how Babylonian law allowed husbands to drown their wives for alleged adultery. Okay, so hopefully most of us are kind of shocked in the idea of like, really, just drown your wife for alleged adultery? But... Here's her connection. But my students are also living in Texas, in which women make up 94% of the victims' domestic partner murder suicides, not to mention the U.S., in which almost 25% of women have experienced severe physical violence by an intimate partner. Uh, there's absolutely no connection between saying it's just to drown a woman alleged of adultery. All you have to do is be alleged of adultery, and so you get to drown somebody. And then the idea of domestic violence, which is you know, punished, uh, in our culture, that there's any connection between the two. Um, it is just a total non sequitur. And not only that, uh, if you get a chance, just Google egalitarianism and domestic violence. What you'll find in research, empirical research, shows that there is no connection between patriarchy and an increase in domestic violence. But actually what you have are women in the egalitarian culture are more violent towards men. So, so the interesting thing is here, this operating assumption of Beth Allison Barr and feminists is that patriarchy oppresses women and creates an environment of violence. But actually, uh, there's no um, indication that violence is lessened from a male to female part in egalitarian culture. But what you do find is more violence from the female to the male in a non-egalitarian or an egalitarian environment. So uh, we're not going to chase down all these non-sequiturs that she makes throughout the books, but we just want kind of want to get at the heart of the issue, which I believe is this. Um, it's creation. It's male and female creation, which I believe Beth Allison Barr wants to deny. And she denies this in a very practical way in the sense that she follows a woman named Gerda Lerner. Now, Gerda Lerner was uh, pretty much a key feminist. If there's a feminist program in America, it's the fruit of uh, Gerda Lerner's work or a woman's study program. Rather, it's the fruit of Gerda Lerner's work in America. And Beth Allison Barr appeals to Gerda Lerner for the beginning of patriarchy and kind of how it came about. And this is important to um, Beth Allison Barr's narrative because what she wants to do is following Gerda Lerner's lead, she, she needs patriarchy uh, to be a social construction. So even if you take the title of the book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. Uh, biblical womanhood is not something given to a woman. It's not 
something a woman is to walk in, but it's something created by a social environment. And so patriarchy is not has nothing to do with creation, has nothing to do with God's order of things, but it's been uh, oppressive social structures that have been made by man. So slavery is something that uh, you know a society can either have or not have. It's not essential to creation. It was not there with the original creation. And so for Beth, Alice, and Barr, if you take something like Galatians uh, 3.28, in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, uh, slave nor free, She'd want these things to be socially constructed, and they would not have been there at the very beginning of creation. And now some of those things, we would agree that, you know, slave and free are not there at the beginning of creation. We would say that male and female were there at the beginning of creation. And then the idea of uh, Greek and Jews starts to get a little more difficult because that is kind of a historically contingent, redemptive event. Um, But I would argue that male, female are part of the essential aspects of what it means to be a human being. Being a slave or free is not an essential aspect of what it means to be a human being. Uh, being Jew or Greek is not an essential aspect of what it means to be a human being. So for Beth Allison Barr, uh, biblical womanhood is uh, kind of created, the, these ideas that there is a biblical womanhood. And like I said, she was following Gerda Lerner. And one of the things that's interesting in a New York Times interview, um, she says, Gerda Lerner says that in order to uh, understand the historical roots of patriarchy, and since patriarchy is an historically constructed thing, it can be deconstructed, and so we need to move away. So when you think of deconstruction, think of somebody, think of something being centered and us moving away from it. So if whiteness is centered, we're moving away from whiteness. If patriarchy is centered, we're moving away from from it, and in moving away from it, we're we're basically uh, deconstructing it. We might be recentering something else. And so for Beth Allison Barr, or for Gerda Lerner rather, she says this in, in trying to attempt to understand the historical. Um, the creation of patriarchy, she says this, in order to answer the questions I was interested in, I had to find out when men and women began to think that men and women are essentially different. Okay, so think about that for a second. Um, At what point in history did men and women begin to think they were essentially different? For Gerda Lerner and Beth Allison Barr, who's following her lead, that is an historical process. So there was, I'm not sure what exactly what Lerner thought the male-female consciousness was like prior to um, finding out they were essentially different. But prior to that, there would have been like a oneness in their consciousness, and they would have, wouldn't have really recognized the distinction. And one of the aspects, there's a, there's a, this is kind of a side note, but um, Peter Jones, I believe is his name, he, uh, Google oneness and two-ness, he's at the Truth Exchange, um, and he's written a couple really good books on how monism is kind of the backing of kind of ba- pagan ideology, and that's much of what is driving this. And I will always argue that this egalitarian idea, including the construction of male and female, always ends up trans because there is no maleness. There is no femaleness. There is no manhood. There is no uh, womanhood. There's simply these social constructed things. And so nature doesn't tell a woman how she ought to be behaving or men how they ought to be behaving. Or even as the homosexual will argue, nature doesn't tell you what you ought to be desiring sexually. Whereas Christians, we would maintain, no, there is something to manhood, womanhood. Uh, there's a maleness, femaleness, and that there ought to be uh, sexual desires. Um, and so the other things I think are kind of important to this is that male-female is a binary. Of you know, We often want to eradicate the binary. I think what makes more sense is for us Christians to maintain that there is a binary, um, but then within the context of a man, there's a spectrum of masculinity. Uh, within the um, uh, aspect of being a woman, there's a um, spectrum of femininity. So just by nature, some women are going to be more feminine than others. And by nature, some men are going to be more masculine than others. Um, but there's still a thing that all men 
ought to be behaving in a certain way. And it's not a flat behavior thing because there's a, a spectrum here and we're different parts of the body. Um, but we do want to maintain a binary between the male and female. There's a maleness, there's a femaleness, and the, the two are not intertwined. We want to keep uh, creation uh, where it is. And then we also just want to simply maintain contrary to learner that uh, you know, as soon as the female was made, Adam's like, flesh my flesh, bone my bone, she shall be called woman. So from the get-go, um, and even when Adam, was, I believe, was looking at the animals, he understood there was a difference between men and women. So when did this essential difference happen? At the very beginning of creation. So if this consciousness was there, that men and women are essentially different from the very beginning of creation, then per Gerda Lerner, uh, patriarchy was always there. Now, Beth Allison Barr kind of wanted to be Christian, wants, has to acknowledge some strand of the creation story, but kind of wants to maintain that there's some sort of uh, egalitarian uh, effort in there. Um, but we're going to see here in a second why that's not the case. But let's uh, define uh, patriarchy, at least from Beth Allison Barr's perspective. She follows Judith Bennett, and she kind of gives three ideas for patriarchy. One, male ecclesiastical leaders. Um, all through the Bible, every ecclesiastical leader was a male. So on that grounds, the Bible is patriarchy. Now for Beth Allison Barr, she wants uh, this to be a uh, basically an accommodation to the culture rather than an essential aspect of how God is structuring uh, reality. Uh, but I just think that's kind of foolish, even going back to what we'll see here in creation in a second. Uh, secondly, she describes patriarchy as legal power of male husbands' heads. If you read Numbers 30, I think it's pretty clear that uh, male have males have legal power. Husbands have legal power over their daughters over their sons and even over their wives and the vows that they make and stuff like that. So the Bible would be, uh, on these grounds, the first two, um, patriarchal. The third thing she says, a society that promotes male authority and female submission. And she wants to say that this is a, uh, that one and two function under three. So if you have one and two, uh, it's because you have a patriarchal society which promotes female submission. And now what we want to often say and usually say is that, you know, uh, your wife does not have to submit to me. She's not my wife. And so Christian wives ought to submit to Christian husbands. Uh, they don't submit to their uh, neighbor's husbands and stuff like that. So so I think it's a little bit of a misnomer to say a society that promotes, but within that, uh, we are often, you know, broadly, we're going to promote military leaders being men, uh, heads of state being men, and that's just kind of the nature of reality. And, and so what we do have, though, we have to account for all the biblical categories of a Deborah and a Hulda and all that sort of stuff. And so if, if our understanding of patriarchy does allow women to do all that is expressed in the Bible that's held up as a godly thing, we need to evaluate our understanding of patriarchy. And similarly, on the other side, Beth Allison Bars of the world need to reevaluate their egalitarianism in light of texts that I think are very clear of you know, wives submit to their husbands, um, etc. And so one of the central aspects to her argument to kind of emote and kind of conjure up fear of, of uh, patriarchy, she says this, um, that patriarchy is a devaluing a woman's work, a general system that values men and their contribution more than it values women and their contribution. But nobody in my circles, uh, which I would say are pretty patriarchal, um, that I'm aware of, uh, devalues women's work. Uh, there, I, actually, I shouldn't say There are a couple of the guys, I think, who I think, I don't think they have a right view of women. Um, and I think they do value women's work. I think that, yeah, so I think there are definitely men who do that. I don't think that's unique to patriarchal men. I'm sure you're going to find that in plenty of egalitarian circles as well. Uh, but again, if, if that's the understanding, um, we need to be clear that, no, we value women's work. We just maintain that there's a difference between men and women. But what liberals have to do is try to get a leg up 
on the moral issue right off the bat. And so if they can accuse you of devaluing women's work, um, we just simply maintain, no, we don't devalue women's work. We think men and women are fundamentally different. And is that a social construction? Is that this or that? And at least in the context of biblical Christianity, we have to continue to maintain that these things are connected, our sexual ethic, our identities of men and women, and all that sort of stuff. And, um, and so ultimately, Beth Allison Barr will go trans, um, I think we've even seen that on her Twitter. She will go trans if she goes that route. Uh, the other thing she brings up is Christian patriarchy and pagan patriarchy. Uh, I'm going to maybe address this in two weeks and just kind of show the contrast between what we as Christians maybe more thoroughly mean as patriarchy and what pagans uh, mean by patriarchy. And maybe just to kind of tip my hand here, in Genesis 3.16, Beth Allison Barr kind of wants to identify that beginning the beginning of patriarchy. And we can kind of agree with the strands of pagan patriarchy that we do believe that the fall has ruptured the cosmos, and now men are or can be abusive of women and can devalue women, and we don't want to maintain that at all. We want to be utterly opposed to that. And one of the things I, I just think from a rhetorical standpoint that we have to do, we can't allow liberals to dictate discourse. So, for example, when Jesus and John Wayne comes out, which I have not read, um, what we don't need to do is allow them to set the antithesis between, look, here's what's normal, uh, and, and set up this dialectical process where we're subtly defending what ought to be indefensible from a biblical grounds. We don't want the culture dictating to us how we view women. So, you know, we might make a little joke about women making sandwiches, um, and I, I think on the whole there's a service aspect to that going on, but, but we're not people who just think women make sandwiches. Uh, I don't think that's a biblical view of patriarchy, a biblical view of women. Um, although there may be a more centering for the women in the home. And so that, that's the sort of stuff that we can't allow the feminists to dictate, but we need to immerse ourselves in the scripture and preach the whole counsel of God. And one other thing before we get to a little more details uh, of, of the book is uh, if you get a chance, hop on calcedon.edu and read the first chapter of R.J. Rushdoony's uh, The One and the Many, because I think this is where uh, much of the debate actually lies. I think strands of patriarchy, uh, men who just want men to rule and they uh, clearly put women way in the background, uh, what they're doing is they are negating uh, the many. They're really negating the diversity between men and women, and they're swallowing them up under men. And so they, the women kind of lose their identity and lose their individuality um, in, in terms of this heavy, heavy patriarchy. And in, in more like a Saudi or a pagan context, the women are just kind of there as part of men in a, in, in a wicked way and not in a way that is uh, genuinely loving and biblical and godly. But then on the flip side, the Beth Allison Bars, in response to that, um, emphasize the many and they kind of break down the unity of the family. They break down the uni unity of them being under the head of, you know, they created the man, male and female. Uh, they end up breaking that down and they end up becoming uh, completely many in particular. And so there is nothing called female. And so uh, the difficulty is how do we keep kind of a unity and diversity? Uh, and I think R.J. Rushdoon in that book does a good job laying out from a political standpoint, but we need to even think through that as a family standpoint, that the fundamental unit of society is the family with med male leadership. Within that, you're, though, you're still going to have children who are individuals, yet part of the family. You have the wife who's an individual, yet one with her husband. So the two are one. And so that's kind of, I think, where we can go askew pretty quickly um, at points. And so let's kind of race through this and uh, so one of the things she wants to do here is she calls it flipping the script. And so what she says is that the first human sin built the first human power structure. Everyone already knew patriarchy was a result of fall, uh, but was it? And so, um, so what she basically wants is that there was no hierarchy at the very beginning of creation. But I think this is bunk on several fronts. Uh, first of all, Adam was created first, was given the commandment, and then 
he's given Eve as a helpmate, and he gives her the commandment. But even in light of that, if their commandment was to be fruitful and multiply, do we really think that their children were not going to be part of a hierarchical structure? Um, What sort of family unit were the children going to be under? So I would say from the very beginning, uh, with God giving the world with offspring and total side, but this is why liberals hate the family, because no families can give us an egalitarian outcome. Uh, as long as your parents are raising you or you are raising your children and I'm raising my children, they're going to be in different homes and we're not going to produce the same results in them. So ultimately, uh, the, the humanist hates this component. And this is why you'll read crazy papers every now and then while we got to take children out of the family, because as long as there are families, it's never going to be egalitarian. So I would just say from the very beginning, uh, you have hierarchical structures, and it's not the result of human sin. But there are, uh, what did I come up with here? Um, I think seven reasons uh, for why we should think uh, Adam was uh, a head or ruler um, over Eve prior to the fall. One of those things uh, is actually building out of Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, um, and then husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he appeals to the beginning uh, for that. So I think that the, there's a type and shadow from the very beginning of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman that plays out in redemptive history. So in light of that, Adam going into a deep sleep, coming out, basically getting resurrected and getting a wife, that parallels uh, Christ being pierced in the side, going into a deep sleep, pierced in the side. He comes out the other side and then he gets a wife. And if uh, a little bit contingent, but if we're reading the Gospel of John, it's about the new Adam, the new man. Um, that's basically what happens throughout the book of John. And then in the book of Revelation, it's about the bride. It's the new Eve. It's the new woman that he's taken. So that parallels Genesis 2 and 3, I believe. So I would just say that the, from the very beginning of creation, the male and female is about God and his redemption and the story of Christ and his church. And so from the, and the church is always submissive to Christ. And so that's not an abusive thing. I have no problem being uh, subordinate to Christ. I think it's a thing of beauty, so we want to maintain that. As I mentioned a minute ago, uh, the very nature of having children uh, would be uh, a hierarchical structure. Uh, third, it's very clear that if you read Genesis 2 that man is the center of the narrative. Um, even in the, being part of the center of the narrative, Adam is formed first. This is part of Paul's argument in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Also in 1 Corinthians 11, 8, 9, he says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And so the, the Bible's understanding of the original creation was a priority to the man and the woman being made as a helper for the man. So it's not an egalitarian uh, structure in egalitarian society. Um, another aspect that goes on there that the feminists want to buck against is that Adam, uh, like God, names the animals and the woman. Um, it's a sign of sovereignty. So in Genesis chapter 1, when God's naming things, it's a sign of his sovereignty. When God gives Adam the ability to name uh, uh, the beasts of the field and all the animals that he brought to him, it's a sign of his sovereignty. But then he ends up naming uh, Eve both as woman. Uh, he names her woman first, then he also names her Eve. And some feminists want to say it wasn't until after the fall that he names her Eve. And so uh, the idea of woman... Um, shouldn't be taken as a sign of sovereignty. But the language for God is all the same in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 with Adam naming the woman and God naming the various things. So I think that kind of argument is is kind of forced. And then finally, which we've kind of mentioned, is the instruction from the Torah is that uh, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it says, as it's written in the law. Um, And so what I believe is going on there in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 14 um, is that this is a reflection on Genesis chapter 2, Adam was given the Torah, 
uh, given the law, and he was to instruct the bride. He was to teach her the word, is what he was supposed to do. And Adam's work there is corresponds with what the priests end up doing. So Adam's work there is priestly, and you did have women diaconates in the tabernacle. And so there's nothing wrong with a woman being there serving as a diaconate in the tabernacle. Uh, that's what you have going on. And so I, I think that's just kind of vital. So for, but for Beth Allison Moore, or Barr rather, uh, her big thing is that uh, patriarchy comes about in Genesis 3.16, and she quotes uh, Alice Matthews. Um, and it's, it's not a very convincing argument at all, but um, Alice Matthews says this in Genesis 3.16, uh, is where we first see hierarchy in human relationships. Hierarchy was not God's will for the first pair, but it was imposed when they chose to disregard his command and eat uh, the forbidden fruit. Adam would now be subject to his source, the ground, and even as Eve was now the subject to her source, Adam. So on the bright side, um, Alice Matthews is recognizing that Eve is now subject to the source. And so what Beth Allison Barr, she wants to basically deconstruct patriarchy. She needs to deconstruct the fall. And what she also has to uh, ironically acknowledge is that the woman was central to creating um patriarchy because it was her rebellion if we follow the story out consistently to it but then if she wants to mitigate Eve's rebellion she has to place adam in a higher role of responsibility to have prevented her from falling and that's what we as kind of say patriarchal society would want to maintain is yeah adam there was an there's an element where eve was deceived and adam was more culpable in having her rebel because he was directly given revelation by god he was to instruct eve and he failed to do that so uh, i think you know Alice Matthews and Beth Allison Barr err regarding how they understand uh, the fall taking place because they want to, in some regard, make it this man abusive thing. But if we follow out what Beth Allison Barr wants, it's actually the women that created a patriarchal society and created the subjugation of women by their rebellion. And she generally doesn't seem to want to go there uh, throughout this book. And then she also, uh, one other thing I want to brush on because it's so bad is um, she quotes this um, uh, missionary who a century ago uh, kind of had a crazy interpretation of Genesis 3.16 that the fall was actually Eve listening to her husband and not listening to God. Um, but that's the narrative is exactly the opposite. God judges Adam for having listened to the woman. And so the, the from the and that's actually really when I quoted Numbers chapter 30 and the men able to break the vow, Adam, if he was a faithful husband, uh, would have broken the woman's vow and would have said, no, we're not eating of the fruit. You're not doing this. And so even even the law of Torah is tied into these sorts of things. So there's a lot of stuff that uh, I think needs to get flushed out. And finally, let me just quote from uh, Gordon Wenham regarding Genesis 3.16 and how we are uh, to understand this. He says this, uh, your urge will be to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Here it is more difficult to grasp the author's precise intention. Evidently, he does not regard female subordination to be a judgment on her sin in that woman was made from man to be her helper and is twice named by man in Genesis 2.23, 3.20, indicates his authority over her. It is therefore usually argued that rule here represents harsh exploitive subjugation, which so often characterizes women's lot in all sorts of societies. Quoting Derek Kidner, to love and to cherish becomes to desire and to dominate. Women often allow themselves um, to be exploited in this way because of their urge towards their husband. Their sexual appetite may sometimes make them submit to quite unreasonable male demands. Once again, women's life is blighted at the most profound level. Susan Foe in the Westminster Theological Journal in 1974 has, however, argued that the woman's urge is not a craving for her man whatever he demands, but an urge for independence 
indeed, a desire to dominate her husband. Such an interpretation of urge is required in the very closely parallel passage in um, Genesis 4-7, which was, uh, sin is crouching out your door, you must master it. Very similar, the same language going on. Where sin's urge is said to be for Cain, but he must master it. Here in Genesis 3-16, woman's desire for independence would be contrasted with an injunction to man to master her. There is a logical simplicity about Foe's interpretation that makes it attractive. But given the rarity of the term urge, uh, certain certainty certainty is impossible. Uh, so what do we have going on here? It's, it's, it's basically this. Beth Allison Barr's approach to Genesis uh, is is just misdirected. She needs women to be a socially constructed, as we understand women and as we understand men, to be socially constructed. This is the same thing with uh, Jesus and John Wayne. Uh, the, they have to set masculinity stuff are socially constructed. Now, there's obviously a, a grain of truth uh, to these things, um, and we don't want to be Victorians. We're not trying to return to a Victorian era. What we're trying to do as Christians, if we're truly submitting to the Word of God, we do want to look at our culture. And if we are in, say, Saudi Arabia, we're in Afghanistan, we do want to deconstruct, quote-unquote, patriarchy. Um, we want to set forth biblical Christianity, biblical manhood, biblical womanhood, and we need to tease out all the implications of that. We need to be willing to be critical of our culture uh, where that is maintained. But at the same time, at the end of the day, we have to uh, maintain the Bible. The Bible is the uh, sole or the final authority in faith and practice, and we need to go that route. And so, so far, as far as chapter one goes, uh, Beth Allison Barr's attempt to kind of identify the creation of patriarchy in history, I think, is a failure. It's there from the very beginning of creation. Um, it's there when there's male and female. Girdle Learner's right that patriarchy is a fruit of uh, men and women recognize that they're essentially different. That essential difference happens at the very beginning of creation. So patriarchy itself is there at the very beginning of creation. So that's this episode of the Campus Reach Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, you can reach me at keithdarrell at gmail. I've been telling, giving out keith at campusreacher.com, and apparently that email is not working. So keithdarrell at gmail.com. I'm also on the Twitter at Campus Evangel, Campus Preacher on Instagram, and you can find me, Keith Darrell, on Facebook. Lord bless you. Keep you. Talk to you next week.